Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons and my aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. It's been a while since the last episode. The podcast has always been a project that resides at the top of my hierarchy of needs in the area of self-actualization and over the last few months I've had a variety of things to take care of which meant that I couldn't give the podcast the focus that it deserves. But the good news is, even though content production will ebb and flow from time to time, the podcast as a project will continue. So thanks for your patience, and now let's get on with the show. You are an experience machine. Everything that has ever happened to you, everything that will ever happen to you, everything you think might happen to you, is all experience. All things, be they objects, sensations, thoughts, Memories, abstractions, emotions are all things that can be experienced. They are experience. They are things perceived by you. They become part of you. They may even be inseparable from you, constituting that thing we call the self. Understanding what experience tells us about the nature of reality then offers us a window into what it means to be conscious, what it means to be a human being, what it means to be you. In the conventional sense, experience is a word we invoke to describe things that have happened, things that are tangible, the were or the was of our realities. Experience seems intrinsic to the actual, to reality, to lived. However, experience is not just something that happens out there in the world. Much of it, perhaps all of it, happens inside our minds, the original virtual reality. We can perceive the experience of things we can never see, This is different from experiencing the object itself, but the experience of what we imagine an experience might be like is an experience nonetheless. Experience, then, is complicated, as it describes not just what has happened, but everything that does happen, that could happen. Experience is as close as we can get to reality as it exists entirely within our minds. It's a filter through which reality is passed and interpreted by them. Experience is the constant of consciousness. It is inexplicable, difficult to measure, almost impossible to describe, and definitely impossible to replicate. There is no way for you to experience what I am experiencing in precisely the way that I experience it. As Thomas Nagel famously asked, what is it like to be a bat, to see in sonar waves? Now we can easily see how this would be impossible, just as imagining a universe beyond four dimensions challenges our cognitive abilities. Some things, many things, are beyond our capabilities to experience. When we attempt to do so, we often anthropomorphize things. We give them a humanistic spin so we can understand them through the lens of human consciousness and experience. Now, we are aware of all of this notionally. None of what I've said so far should come as much of a surprise. However, experience is so intrinsic, so much a part of our consciousness, inseparable from it, that it's difficult to truly discern the margins of what constitutes experience. As I mentioned, we can't define it only according to what is out there, what we see, taste, smell and touch. We must also define experience according to the synthesis of ideas within our minds. 
our imaginations and the often undetectable illusions that befall our every other moment. To say experience is somehow an accurate reflection of the world out there would be a falsehood, although many of the physical sciences argue that our senses have evolved to provide us with just such an accurate picture of reality as it has been given. What use would eyesight be if vision didn't depict precisely what was in our field of view? However, the way we see the world, literally through our eyes, is but one version of reality, and arguably a misleading one at that. There is a vast spectrum of light, and most of it is undetectable to our eyes. Indeed, had the clever and creative among us not figured out ways to see beyond the anthropocentric visible light spectrum, we would not know such worlds even existed. To say then that humans see reality may be true in one sense, but reality is rich and overflowing with information. We have evolved to see just a fraction of it, but what we see is something that happens entirely within our brains. Indeed, more than half of the work taking place in the cortical regions of the human brain is devoted to processing visual information. Somewhere in all of that cognitive work, a visual experience is generated, but that's just the beginning. Overlaid upon that visual field is myriad contextual elements derived from a lifetime of exposure to lived experience. Everything you experience is the end result of a million stories learned and retold throughout your life. You see a glass of water, but every detail of what that image represents exists within your mind. The shape and the feel of the glass, how to hold it with precisely the right amount of tension so you don't drop it or crush it, how to move it so the water doesn't slosh out of it. Why the water is in there in the first place, and what water is, what it feels like to want to drink the water, and what it feels like to drink it, to swallow it, to feel refreshed. I could go on and on. Every detail of even the most obvious conceptual elements of perceived reality are the result of stories experienced by us since the moment we arrived in waking consciousness. And each of our stories is unique. They may converge and overlap at times, but often they run in parallel. Our stories are ours, and ours alone. In the previous few episodes, we've looked at ideas around knowledge and behaviour, where it comes from, namely the physicalist view, common to the natural sciences, that knowledge is found in the things that we can see and measure. These ideas are grounded in the real. They take for granted that there is an objective reality, which, given the right tools and enough time, we can reduce to core constituents. Physical truths about the nature of reality. However, if all we have is experience, our individual, personalised, subjective experience as our window to the world, then how can we ever hope to find objective truths? This is not to say objective knowledge does not exist, but rather to question whether human beings can access objective truth at all. We have reached a crossroads then, where physical explanations of reality depart from subjective experience, where the world and indeed the universe cannot be both real and imagined in the same mind. The question is simple then, even if the answer is complex. Is there a reality beyond consciousness, or is reality the result of experience? Ponder that question for a moment. Is reality an observable, independent part of the world, or is it experience itself which creates the worlds which we inhabit? On the face of it, this may sound like a ridiculous question. Of course reality exists. There were dinosaurs and mountains and the Big Bang and a universe of emptiness long before humans arrived to podcast about such things. 
However, what are all of those things without the concepts to describe them? In the book of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible, God revealed Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Ten concepts given by the Supreme Being. But what about everything else? Where did the concepts of everything we take for granted come from? We cannot hover our gaze over an object and wait for a pop-up tooltip to appear and tell us what it is. All concepts, I repeat, all concepts come from us and from us alone. Knowledge is not baked into objects waiting for us to discover them. We put them there when we become conscious of them. Without us, without human culture, experience and consciousness, what really exists? We're not here talking about the stuff of stars or of matter, of galaxies and oceans, but of what those things mean and represent. All of the the between-the-lines of reality is given by us, by human minds. This leads to a conundrum. If we agree that there is stuff out there beyond our consciousness, but that all we have to interpret it is our consciousness, then what can we ever hope to really understand or to know? This is an epistemological question. What can we know? Indeed, the question itself is uniquely human. Epistemology itself is a human creation, ironically enough. The question of epistemology, of knowledge, is inseparable from the being able to conceive of it, an ontology. Epistemology, therefore, is not so much a question of of seeking objective truths and facts about the nature of reality. It's an ontological one about the nature of being itself. From all of this, then, we arrive at one such idea which takes as its premise what I've described so far. All is experience. Reality is not just filtered through or by experience, it is experience itself. Understanding the nature of experience, then, is our primary tool, in fact our only tool, for understanding the nature of reality. Whether reality exists objectively or only subjectively becomes irrelevant when we focus only upon the nature of experience itself, interpreting experience for what it is. Through this, we can examine what it really means to be a sentient, conscious human being. The name for this project is Phenomenology. Phenomenology is broad, but our time is not, so as always I'll aim to hit a few wave tops. Consider though that this is not a philosophy lesson or a history lesson. If anything, it's a psychology lesson, one about me, about what I choose to include and what I left out either intentionally or due to ignorance. That itself says a lot about phenomenology and subjective experience. I give you just one version of the topic, my own version. You will have your own. But for convention's sake, we can define phenomenology as a methodology rather than a specific metaphysic. It's a way of getting at the truth rather than a description of the truth itself. Phenomenology takes as its premise the notion that the fundamental source of meaning and value is lived experience. Indeed, as I have argued, lived experience is the only source of meaning, value and explanation for reality. The modern origins of phenomenology come from the German philosopher Edmund Husserl. He describes the project as seeking to examine the structures of experience and consciousness to describe reality as it appears to be. That is, phenomenology attempts to reflect upon the objects of experience as they exist independent of context. Husserl used the ancient Greek word epoche, meaning to suspend judgment to describe this process. If phenomenology, epoche means to set aside assumptions and pre-held beliefs. 
Husserl's concern was to focus attention through the noise of lived experience to the objects of experience, which he famously described as a return to the things themselves. Considering Husserl's background as a mathematician here is helpful for gaining an insight into how we approach phenomenology through this logical methodology. In a mathematical equation, brackets separate different parts. The figures inside brackets form one part of the equation, and they are to be treated separately from what is on the outside. Husserl used this process as an analogy for analyzing experience by attempting to bracket out assumptions and beliefs, the epoche, about the world which influence our experience. Instead, he focused only upon the object of experience that existed within those brackets. We can explain this a little more clearly. The everyday goings-on in consciousness, the steady stream of ideas, things and experiences coming and going, could be thought of as like the default mode. We wander about experiencing things, reacting, choosing, living, being. If I ask you to reflect upon what's happening in your consciousness right now, you could describe a few things to me without difficulty. You are aware that you are conscious, and that you are vaguely aware of what's going on within your consciousness. There's no mystery here. Meaning, though, is associated with everything in your consciousness because of the vast interactions between objects, culture, and the environment. You see the world through this multi-layered context. Husserl described this as the natural attitude, it's you version 1.0. But Husserl wanted to get beyond the natural attitude. He wanted to step back or outside of that stream of consciousness and all of the information bundled up with experience and examine what is really there, the experience of objects themselves. What is the essence of an object in consciousness at its most fundamental level without cultural, social and historical baggage? What do the objects in consciousness mean in and of themselves, and where does this meaning come from? What is the relationship between the essences of phenomena that we experience and human being itself? These questions are complex and impossible to answer from the natural attitude. To do so then, we must take that step back, suspend our stream of consciousness, and bracket out the context of experience, and adopt a phenomenological attitude. Robert Sukolaski describes this well when he asks us to imagine a cube. We see the cube from one angle, or perspective, and from that perspective we see one, two, or maybe even three of its sides. This could be analogous to the natural attitude. Yet we know it's a cube, and that it must have six sides, even though we can't see all of them at once. So we experience the cube as a cube. We don't need to see the entirety of the object in order for us to experience it as such. We know that what we subjectively experience, the visible faces, are not a representation of the entire objective nature of the cube. Experience must therefore be a blend of presence and absence, of real and imagined. The phenomenological attitude is the experience of the blended perspectives of the object, of how it feels to us, not just how it appears in physical reality, for this perspective offers only an incomplete view. Phenomenology is, therefore, an exercise in reduction. Consciousness is always conscious of something, even if that thing is consciousness itself. The definition of consciousness is to be aware and responsive to one's surroundings, a person's awareness or perception of something. Consciousness is like the beam of a flashlight or a torch, and something is always in that beam. We are so used to thinking of objects as things that we can grasp, tangible things with edges and boundaries, that concepts are elusive and ephemeral. 
but they too are objects of consciousness. Consciousness is intentional, it's always directed at something. Husserl described this as intentionality. And the intentionality captures the entirety of the experience of an object, not ju- just what is most salient about it, its visible faces. Husserl wanted to get beyond the natural attitude of intentionality to the focus of consciousness, to the transcendental correlates of consciousness. Husserl referred to this process as eidetic reduction. Eidetic reduction is at the core of Husserl's phenomenology. It's to reflect on the objects of consciousness from the phenomenological attitude, where the essence of the experience of them is revealed. A chair can be reduced to its atoms, quarks and leptons. However, the experience of blue or the emotional stirrings of a song have no such tangible character beyond that which we can experience. For example, when thinking about a house, we can imagine walls, windows, a roof and a door, and various other things that make up a house. But Husserl wanted to understand what is the experience of a house beyond each of the parts that make it up? What is the essential nature of the experience of houseness? Phenomenology sets out to understand the qualia of experience in the hope of better understanding what it means to be human. But Husserl was more ambitious than just this. He hoped phenomenology could be used to understand the essence of consciousness itself, and in so doing, form the basis for scientific projects by beginning all analysis and experience independent of the material world, moving from intuition rather than from induction. That is, phenomenology is not concerned with explaining the causal relationships between matter and motion which are so central to the natural sciences. It's concerned only with describing how things actually appear in consciousness, how they are given. As we are concerned only with things as given in consciousness, it matters then little how they are in reality, or even if there is a reality beyond conscious experience. All that matters in phenomenology is the experience of the things themselves. So that's the beginning, the foundations of phenomenology that started in the early 20th century. But it was a student of Husserl's who would extend upon this work and take it in a new direction. The student was Martin Heidegger, who's somewhat notorious in philosophy, not because of his work, which is extensive and inaccessible, but immensely influential in modern-day psychology and philosophy, but because he was a member of the Nazi party during the Second World War. Many philosophers shun his work altogether on this basis, and perhaps deservedly so, for Heidegger appeared to comment in one of his works that Husserl's ability to imagine the future of phenomenology was limited by his Jewish heritage. However, no treatment of phenomenology can exclude the work of Heidegger, even if we must bracket out his political views for just a moment. Heidegger's major contribution to phenomenology was to reject Husserl's attempt at epoche. He felt that it is impossible to bracket out context, as everything that is given in consciousness is the product of the historical, social, situatedness of the object. He felt phenomenology cannot exist only in two dimensions, describing merely observation of the senses. Rather, it must construct an image in three dimensions, with depth coming from the historical, cultural, situatedness of concepts which make up the experiences of reality. We live in a complex world which gives us experiences, We do not exist independently of them. Everything acts upon everything else. And as such, being is not reducible beyond being in the world. Heidegger coined the term design, literally meaning their being, to describe the essential nature of the human being as part of the life world, or Lebenswald, irreducible beyond the context it is situated within. 
This is a crucial aspect of Heidegger's phenomenology. For Heidegger, as being itself was essential, understanding the meaning of being was the ultimate project of phenomenology. However, Heidegger approached this old age question of what's the meaning of life from a purely secular perspective, no longer wedded to theological explanations from Christianity, say, or the Aristotelian explanations which were rooted in deduction from the analysis of the physical material world. Meaning for design is derived from the intentionality of lived experience, similar to Husserl's natural attitude, how we tend to interpret and describe experiences comes from ready-to-hand explanations, things as they appear to us at face value. And these form what he would call four understandings given by history, culture, and society. Being in the world, then, is not a solo project where the individual drifts about as if disconnected from the life world. Design is integral with other life worlds in a constant overlap of intersubjectivity. Meaning cannot be detached from people, objects, language, and culture. As the psychologist Jonathan Smith writes, quote, From Heidegger's perspective, we are mistaken if we believe that we can occasionally choose to move outwards from some inner world to take up a relationship with the various somatic and semantic objects that make up our world, because relatedness to the world is a fundamental part of our constitution. Being in the world is always perspectival, always temporal, and always in relation to something. End quote. We take for granted most of the life world as just the way things are, as if they could be any other way. It may be so, but like Husserl, Heidegger was interested in what is left after reflexively analysing being and our taken-for-granted assumptions about the world. We'll return to Heidegger in a later episode, but for now, we'll move on to another 20th century philosopher whose thoughts on phenomenology would shape that movement. This was Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Merleau-Ponty was intrigued by perception. His work was a departure from prevailing empiricist theories in psychology, which considered the parts and pieces of brains and the causal nature of their interactions, as we've explored in previous episodes on behaviorism and cognitivism. Merleau-Ponty looked to the gestalt nature of perception and the body, considering that experience cannot be reduced to the convulsions of the body, but is emergent from perception itself, which he called the primacy of perception. What he's saying is that perception is our first point of contact with the world, existing even prior to language or concepts. Like design, being in the world gives rise to the, to the phenomena of experience. However, Merleau-Ponty looked at the body as an extension of the mind, extending out into the world. And the world is something that is always already there. As Heidegger described, the world is more than just material objects existing in time and space. It's a world of concepts, and those concepts in themselves are human concepts. Meaning is embedded within all objects, however this meaning comes to us through experience. It's not imprinted within the atoms of those objects. And it must be so, as entire universes exist without tangible form, accessible only through our perception from within our minds. Perception is therefore a product of the interface of our body and mind with the world. The body is inseparable from the perceiving mind. It's an extension of it, acting with intentionality. This concept is intriguing, and it leads to a variety of discoveries about the nature of the living world and the human being. Throwing like a girl is one example. The psychologist Erwin Strauss made the following observation of how children throw a ball. Quote, The girl of five does not make any use of lateral space. She does not stretch her arms sideward. She does not twist her trunk. 
She does not move her legs, which remain by her side. All she does in preparation for throwing is to lift her right arm forward to the horizontal and to bend the forearm backward in a pronate position. The ball is released without force, speed or accurate aim. A boy of the same age, when preparing to throw, stretches his right arm sideward and backward, supinates the forearm, twists, turns and bends his trunk and moves his right foot backward. From this stance, he can support his throwing almost with the full strength of his total motorium. The ball leaves the hand with considerable acceleration and it moves towards its goal in a long, flat curve. End of quote. Strauss considered that as the difference in throwing styles is manifest at such a young age, it must be biological. In 1980, the political philosopher Iris Marion Young published an essay which explored the gendered nature of bodies from a feminological perspective. She was influenced by the work of Milo ponty and Simone de Beauvoir, who was the longtime lover of Jean-Paul Sartre. Young rejected Strauss's view. Rather, she suggested that the differences between men and women or boys and girls and how they throw are due to a comportment of women's bodies as a result of cultural and social expectations which together describe the notion of femininity. She defines femininity as, quote, a set of structures and conditions which delimit the typical situation of being a woman in a particular society, as well as the typical way in which the situation is lived by the women themselves, end quote. Throwing a ball is one example of this. Simone de Beauvoir would have called this an oppression of the female form, but Young saw instead a conditioning which psychologically constrains how a woman exists through her body in space. This may sound somewhat esoteric. However, the next example returns us closer to the roots of phenomenology. Young describes the way men and women approach physical tasks. Quote, Many of the observed differences between men and women in the performance of tasks requiring coordinated strength are due not so much to brute muscular strength as to the way each sex uses the body in approaching tasks. Women often do not perceive themselves as capable of lifting and carrying heavy things, pushing and shoving with significant force, pulling, squeezing, grasping or twisting with force. When women attempt such tasks, they frequently fail to summon the full possibilities of their muscular coordination, position, poise and bearing. Women tend not to put their whole bodies into engagement in a physical task with the same ease and naturalness as men. End quote. However, Young also notes that this characteristic of femininity is not universal across cultures, but is seen predominantly in advanced industrial Western societies. The implication, then, is that women inhibit their intentionality, projecting a negative view of what they can and cannot do. How one perceives one's body is not simply a matter of thinking about how it feels to be you in space, but who it is you actually are as a result of inhabiting the life world, with the four understandings that accompany all objects within it, and in the case of Young's essay, the constraints of society upon how women understand and interpret their bodies in the world. This returns us to Merleau-Ponty's work on the embodiment of experience and his notion that the self is not an abstraction coming and going from the world. It is a contingent part of it. Young's essay is seminal in the feminist movement and begins to demonstrate how phenomenology has moved from a theoretical way of thinking about consciousness and reality toward an applied notion of how being is constructed and construed and interpreted in the life world. This leads us then to the evolution of phenomenology into the subject of the next episode and perhaps Martin Heidegger's most well-known work, 
hermeneutics. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.